This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. are listening to the Voices of Wrestling podcast with your hosts, Joe Lanza. X out, go listen to some boring podcast where they're afraid of their own shadow. Okay? Don't listen to Joe Lanza. Because Joe Lanza's not changing. And Rich Cranch. Give me a name. Like Who delivers this guy in a big spot? Joe, don't yell at me. Like in, the, in the big spot. Who delivers better than this guy? Stop yelling at me. I agree. I am the king of banter. The most compelling voice in wrestling media, a reasoned and well-explained man, the leader of the hardcore wrestling intelligentsia, an internationally acclaimed broadcast journalist as heard on BBC Radio, and a good family man. I am Joe Lanza, and you are listening to your favorite wrestling podcast. You are listening to the greatest wrestling podcast on the face of the earth. You are listening to the Voices of Wrestling flagship podcast. And welcome. No Rich Krejci this week. The secretly sassy one, the captain, is on assignment. He's literally on assignment this week. He's working uh, basically night and day to get the 2018 Voices of Wrestling, New Japan Pro Wrestling year in review book finished. He's editing. He's writing, he's piecing it together, he's cutting the business deals, he's picking the art. Rich is doing it all. And that book is set to tentatively drop on the 2nd of January, a couple of days before the Wrestle Kingdom show, as is the tradition. And uh, nobody tell Rich, here's the thing, here's the thing about it. Rich is never going to listen to this because when I do a solo show, he never listens. Rich has no respect for me. He doesn't appreciate my talent. He uh, he just has no use for Joe Lanza's solo takes. I don't know what it is. You know, Rich Krejci does audio. I consume it as soon as it as soon as it drops. Rich never listens to Joe Lanza. So the thing about it is, he'll never hear me say this. But I wonder what Rich would think if I told him I haven't even started writing yet for the book. I always give Rich a heart attack because. I turn in my portions of the book at literally the 11th hour. If there was such a thing as the 12th hour, that's when I turn in my work for the book. Listen, great art cannot be rushed. It just can't. My wrestler profiles, quite frankly, like my solo audio, are works of art. And you can't rush that. You can't rush art. Rich wants everybody writing by the end of November and all through December. I can't, I can't operate that way. I need to take my time and take a deep breath and think about what I'm going to write in the book. I take my Toa Hanare profile very seriously. I want to capture the essence of Shota Aminu. Make sure that the tag team of Tenkoji gets their proper due and we understand the full scope of their 2018 I can't be rushed 
But anyway, the book will come out on the 2nd. Assuming, of course, I finish everything I need to finish. But today, the business at hand is the flagship podcast. Now, next week is the big Wrestle Kingdom preview show. And that is going to uh, eat the entire show. As, as you know, every year we do a Wrestle Kingdom preview show. It encompasses the entire three hours of the flagship. That will come out next week. Now, the Wrestle Kingdom show is, as you know, on the 4th. The 4th is a Friday. So, you're beginning another flagship in a few days. We're going to try to get it done on Monday or Tuesday, Wednesday at the absolute latest, because we know that late night Thursday slash early morning Friday is when Wrestle Kingdom airs. So, we want to give everybody an opportunity to listen to the preview before Wrestle Kingdom actually happens. So, it'll be an earlier flagship than usual next week, which means you're going to get two flagships basically within three or four days of each other. So, that's the quick programming note there. On today's show, we will be doing no Wrestle Kingdom content, because you're going to get that next week with the big preview. So, what I've got lined up for you today is we're going to take a look at the Noah Great Voyage in Yokohama show, which finally aired on the 22nd. And which Rich and I basically implored all of you to watch since Noah had a very, very good, uh, you know, underhyped in some circles year. And this was their big crowning moment for Keito Kiyomiya as he defeats Takashi Sagara for the GHC heavyweight title. That show dropped. I watched it in full. We're going to preview that today on the flagship. Also, a little freebie. For you freeloaders, you non-subscribers, we've got some subscriber content at the end of the show. The Thursday TV reviews, which is the WWE Network content that airs on Wednesdays, which is normally behind the paywall, has been moved to the flagship this week. So everybody gets an opportunity to listen to that for free as I review two episodes of NXT UK and an episode of NXT proper. There's new 205 Live because they did a recap show, so I blew that off. But still... Uh, three hours worth of wrestling reviews at the end of the show, the, the Thursday TV reviews that normally are reserved for behind the paywall. And we're going to get to some other stuff too. Uh, in doing research for the New Japan book, I discovered a very interesting note on the world-class tag team, Gato and Jado. So I'll be talking about that too at some point and, uh, and maybe some other stuff as we move along as well. But I want to get right into it and talk about this Noah show. And first... I want to issue an apology to everybody listening because we told everybody to make sure they go out of their way to watch this Noah Great Voyage show. And that was before it had officially dropped and we hadn't even seen it. And that was a big mistake because the show actually stunk. So I apologize for that. But trust me, Noah has been much better than what you saw on this Yokohama show. And if you haven't seen it, I'm going to break it all down for you. But it wasn't a very good show. It was not a very good show at all. It was a very newsworthy show. I mean, there's no question about that. But the show itself um, was just subpar. At the Yokohama Bunker Gym, the show drew 2,145 fans. Not a bad number. Not a bad number for Noah at this point. Uh, You know, in their history. Not a great number. I can't sit here and tell you it's a great number. But not a bad number. 2,145. They did almost 2,200 fans. Okay. Um, But the show itself, while newsworthy, man, just so disappointing. A huge letdown. And a lot of that had to do with the terrible crowd. The crowd was so bad for this show. 
And again, they didn't get match of the year contenders up and down the card. Okay, I understand that. But they got plenty of angles. They got, what, four title changes. They got buckets of blood. There was plenty of stuff on this show to react to. And they reacted to just about nothing. And that hurt the show tremendously. Because a show that doesn't necessarily have knock it out of the park wrestling can be carried or lifted by a great crowd. And this crowd just didn't show up. Now, I've got a lot of people telling me and trying to make excuses. Oh, well, the acoustics in that Yokohama building have never been good. Historically, it's not the best crowd. Uh, People were going crazy. You just couldn't hear it because uh, it's never mic'd. Well, I don't want to hear any of these excuses. The crowd was terrible. The crowd was terrible. And a lot of times, I'm more than willing to pin that on the wrestlers. If, if a crowd is getting a bad show and they're, getting, and they're given nothing to react to, I don't hold that against the crowd. You see that a lot when you know Monday Night Raw has a poor crowd or a bad WWE pay-per-view and the crowd isn't so hot. Well, if they're, even get, or they're, or if they aren't, if they're not given anything to react to, I can't really pin that on the crowd. That's on the booking or that's on the wrestlers or whatever the case may be. Okay, But this show, they were given plenty to react to. There was something happening basically every step of the way in the second half of the show that the crowd, you know, long-term angles paying off, big-time title changes. I mean, but this crowd was just dead. And I don't want to hear about the bad acoustics or it always sounds like that in that building. Utter nonsense. Okay, I've been watching wrestling long enough for enough years to know what a good crowd is and a bad crowd is. And even by modern standards, which I get it, it's not 1990. I know Jumbo Saruta is not in the ring. Look, I get it. Okay, you know, crowds aren't as hot as they used to be. On average. I get that. For one reason or another. But even by modern standards, this was a horrendous crowd. And it actively hurt a show. And it was no fault of the promotion. It was no fault of the angles that were set up or paid off. And it was no fault of, of the action. Even if the matches. Didn't knock my socks off. Okay? This was a crowd that just wasn't going to react to anything. And it's a shame. Because a lot of stuff on this show did deserve to get some reactions. And Kato Kiyomiya, I speculated last week that my gut was telling me that it may have been too soon to strap him up. And that was before I saw the match. And now I've seen the match. And I believe even more strongly at this point that it may have been a little too soon to strap him up. Now, I'm rooting for him. I want him to succeed. I want Noah to grow. Noah is my favorite promotion historically and always will be. I love the green ring. And I want to see them return to prominence. I want to see them return to the atmosphere we saw at the Naomichi Marafuji anniversary show where Kenta was allowed to return to the company to face Marafuji in the main event, that show fucking ruled because it was like going into a time capsule to a time when Noah drew big crowds and hot crowds and shows had juice. And you had all of those things combined. Now, at times, the shows have juice. 
at times you're getting great matches. Noah had an excellent in-ring year. But we're just not getting big crowds. And we're getting lousy crowds like this one. And this has been the case over the last three or four years in Noah, where it's just a lot of times these crowds are just, they're comatose. It's like they're at a wake. It feels like a funeral. And yeah, okay, you can tell me that Yokohama historically isn't a great crowd. Okay, th- that's fine. But this was bad by any standard. And it's like, I watched Kiyomiya win the title here. And this was the one of the bottom three GHC heavyweight title changes. And I'm pretty sure I've seen them all. Barring maybe one or two. This was, of all the GHC heavyweight title changes in history, this was bottom three in terms of electricity and crowd excitement and people being um, excited or shocked or just any emotion whatsoever for what they just saw occur. And you can blame acoustics all you want. And you could tell me that there were smatterings of women, you know, screeching for Kiyomiya, and both of those things are true. But I saw this guy win the title, and I went back and watched this footage a thousand times preparing for this show. And yeah, you know, people politely clapped when he won. And yeah, during the court, you know, in the post match, during the course of the match, there were there were polite chants for Kiyomiya, and yeah, there were some some uh, female fans screeching for him. Um, at, at various points, and, and, and you had all of that. But you know, this, th- there is no way you can spin this as any kind of hot title change or any kind of moment that felt big for Kaito Kiyomiya. I felt bad for him. It, it is not a great way to get his title reign, his first title reign, of what I presume will be several. It was not a, a an ideal or great way to get it started. And... I really don't, again, I don't blame him and I don't blame Takashi Sagara. Takashi Sagara actually at one point drew a little bit of life out of this horrible, terrible, shameful crowd in Yokohama. He actually drew a little bit of life out of them during the beatdown segment of this match where the fans, for a few fleeting moments, rallied behind Kato Kiyomiya. But it didn't really last. And the finish didn't get any kind of pop that you would expect for a dominant monster champion to lose his title to the upstart potential future star of the company. And if you think it's acoustics, go back and watch and look at the crowd. There's no explosion of excitement. There's not people jumping to their feet. They're not shocked. They're not happy. They're not surprised. They're not anything. They just politely clap. You couldn't get this poor kid's title reign off to a colder start. And again, I put this firmly on the shoulders of the crowd at Yokohama Bunka Gym, who were terrible all night. It's a disgrace. Now look, maybe Noah fans just aren't ready to be behind this guy. That's totally plausible. But this was the moment. 
And he really got off to a poor start. And I really don't think it was the match. Nothing got over on this show. Go Shiozaki bled buckets of blood and nobody cared. I mean, this was an old school territory days beatdown of Go Shiozaki by the new heel unit in the company. And we'll get to the hooligans. And nobody cared. Nakajima made a hot tag and the crowd went absolutely mild at one point in this match. And Nakajima, who works much better as a heel these days, has kind of the last few weeks been working as a face because he's going against hooligans every night. I think that's kind of a problem. But that's the least of the problems on this show. Shiozaki bled buckets in that tag team title match. Nobody cared. Couldn't get a semblance of sympathy as Taniguchi, as Maybach Taniguchi and Yuji Hino destroy Go Shiozaki's face and win the tag team titles. And again, even that finish came off flat. Either because the fans didn't want any part of the hooligans or just don't care about Go Shiozaki after all these years. I don't know what it is. Again, I chalk it up to that crowd being absolute dog shit. And I'm not accepting excuses for them. Because again, they were given plenty to react to. They were given plenty of chances to wake up. Was this a great match? No. Was it a classic, you know, Memphis-style beatdown of Go Shiozaki's, you know, face, which was the proverbial crimson mask? Yeah. And no one cared. I felt horrible watching that. They finally paid off the backbreakers winning the junior tag team titles. Ohara and Hitoshi Kamano, they finally get it done. They beat my man High 69, Hiroki, and Minoru Tanaka for the tag team, junior tag team titles. And granted, that match fucking stunk. I'm not defending the match because it was bad. It was not a good night for anybody in the ring. It was sloppy. It wasn't well worked. But no pop for these guys finally winning the junior tag straps? I don't get it. Daisuke Harada finally vanquishes the cocky prick Kotaro Suzuki who came back into Noah, talked all that shit about the present, talked about how great the past was. Had a very good title reign. They set it up perfectly with the perfect guy to take the title off of him. Harada gets the job done. Suzuki takes a disgusting bump at the end of the match where he lands directly on his head. I don't know if that was planned or not, but it looked great and it worked perfect for the story. Harada puts him away and the crowd goes mild. I mean, it's unbelievable. Nothing got anything out of this. And look, again, it wasn't a poorly booked show. It's not like they, they paid off storylines. They paid off stories that they've been telling for the entire year. And they did it with the right people. You weren't getting anything. I, I'm telling you right now. The corpse of Masawa could have came out from behind that curtain and wrestled Kenta Kobashi and this crowd wouldn't have reacted. 
giant Baba could have rose from the dead and and gotten into the, and no one would he would have they would have got he would have gotten the same polite clapping that everybody else got. Now look, I understand this is a great building for some of these companies to run in the current position they're in. It's the perfect size. If you get real hot, you could fill it. You could put a couple thousand people in it. But these fans don't deserve these kind of shows. And again, the show could have been better bell to bell. But it was well booked and they were given plenty to react to and they didn't. And it makes you sick. It really does make you sick. And it brought down the whole show. Because when you have basic when you basically have okay matches, some that were look, the, the junior tag title match was not good. Harada Suzuki was a good little match. The tag title match, you know, wasn't a great match, but it had the element of all of that blood, which you don't get all the time in Noah. So they did something special in that match. And they got the new heel unit over. Or attempted to. The idea was to get the new unit heel over and put a lot of heat on, uh, you know, put a lot of sympathy on Go Shiozaki. And it just didn't win. They didn't react to that. They got something different there and just didn't react. They didn't go out there and have a three-star special and mail it in. They went out there and did something special and the fans didn't react. And this should have been the crowning achievement, a crowning achievement for Kaito Kiyomiya. This young kid, he vanquishes this dude who's been, you know, bashing people's skulls in for the last however many months since he won the title. He looks indestructible. The kid wins the Global League. He beats the Beast. And we get polite clapping. And a half-hearted chant that lasted 30 seconds. You know, it's disheartening. It really is. And when you've got, you know, matches that aren't particularly, that aren't blowing you out of the building and, and fans aren't reacting to what's going on, this was the kind of show, this was the kind of show that was going to, that was, that the crowd was going to make or break a show like this one. And they broke it. You do this show, this same exact show in front of a hot crowd, and it lifts all of these matches to another level. The junior title match and the heavyweight title match go from very good to great. The tag team title match, everyone's talking about it as a bloody spectacle and they can't wait for Shiozaki to get his revenge. And the junior tag title match in front of a great crowd goes from being a bad match to an average one where a popular team finally won the titles that they've been fighting for. But because of the bad crowd, it took everything down a notch instead of bringing it up a notch. And another fun little thing on this show was Doug Williams coming back to wrestle presumably his final match for Noah against the perfect opponent, Yoshinari Ogawa. And a fun match between two veterans, two guys who have mixed it up in Noah before, and Doug Williams beats Ogawa and says goodbye to Noah. It's a little nod to history there too. So that was a lot of fun. And then, you know, um, the first couple of matches on the show were just... uh, random tag matches that and none of that had any heat and I you know I didn't know that that was a forewarning for what was to come I just figured eh these are meaningless prelim matches the crowd 
uh, you know, they're justified in not necessarily giving a shit. I think they're going to wake up for the big stuff. The problem was they never woke up. You know, Yohei turned against Rattels on this show too. They did another huge angle. And again, that got nothing. Go watch that. It's embarrassing. I have secondhand embarrassment for the, for the wrestlers on this show. Like, they, they, you know, they did a big turn. They did four title changes. Go Shiozaki got, you know, bled like a pig. What more do you want? They gave this crowd tons of shit. Super newsworthy show. Very, it's just so disappointing. One thing that gave me hope for Kiyomiya was when Kano came out to challenge him. Now, that got a bit, that got what qualifies as a big reaction for this crowd, even though, you know, by any other standard. But for this crowd, that qualified, look, they were paying attention and they were into Kano and Kato Kiyomiya facing off. And they'll have their match on, I believe it's January 6th. I'll double check the date. And that'll be Kiyomiya's first title defense in Corican Hall. And we'll see if Tokyo gives Kiyomiya more respect than Yokohama did. I sure hope they do. And this is like, here's the interesting thing about this match on the 6th. Let me double confirm that date before I make my next point and sound stupid. But we've basically come full circle. Because if you recall, when Kano was the GHC heavyweight champion, he faced Kato Kiyomiya in January on the 6th. And that was the match that Kano won by knockout. So now one year later, the tables are turned exactly one year later because it is the 6th. Kiyomiya will defend against Kano. And the tables have completely turned in 365 days. So that's interesting, and that's a lot of fun. One year ago, Kiyomiya's getting kicked in the dome and knocked out. One year later, he's the champion after vanquishing Takashi Segura. And he will defend against a former champion, Kano. I love that full circle storytelling that they're doing here. With all the history between Kiyomiya and Kano to go along with that. That's that's great stuff. So Kiyomiya is the 32nd GHC champion. And uh, hopefully, Kano, look, I think Cork and Hall will give that match a ton of respect. But it's going to go a long way into telling me just how ready the people were for Kiyomiya to win this title. Because I'm still not completely sold that people were ready for this right now. But we'll see. And I'm rooting for him. And the rest of that card on January 6th is excellent. We've got uh, Shiozaki and Nakajima getting a rematch against Tanaguchi and Hino. That's the semi-main event for the tag team titles. First defense for the hooligan team. We got Yohei going against his hooligan stablemates in a six-man tag. Third from the top. Daisuke Harada, Tarasuke, 
and Hayata take on Yoshinori Ogawa, Kotero, Suzuki, and Yohei. So that'll be a lot of fun to see Yohei going up against his boys. Hooligan Grime with uh, Nagai and Kazuma Sakamoto and Cody Hall. They're in a six-man tag against Mohamed Yone, Quiet Storm, and Akatoshi Saito. Then we've got O'Hara and Kumano. This is not a title defense, but they will take on Morahashi and Miyawaki. So you'll see the new junior tag champs. The former junior tag champs, Hiroki and Minoru Tanaka, will face uh, Katoge and Maseo Inoue. Takashi Sagara is uh, going to uh, brutally deconstruct uh, one of the young boys in Amora. He's going to destroy him on the show, and that's going to be a lot of fun to watch the former champion, grumpy as fuck, completely take apart in Amora. And then the opener, another singles match, Masa Kitamiya against another Noah youngster, Okada. Interestingly enough, there's now an Okada in New Japan, All Japan, and Noah. So... That's the show on the 6th at Corican Hall. I'm looking forward to it. And I'm hoping that a good, hot Corican crowd rises up the water level of everything on this show the way that Yokohama just sunk everything when they were given a very interesting show. One of the most interesting Noah shows all year. The year-closing Great Voyage show. And they absolutely shit on it and buried it between the earth. And they don't deserve any more cards like that. I know they're going to get them, but they, don't, they really don't deserve it. It's a disgrace. So hopefully Cork and Hall and the fans from Tokyo can come to the rescue. But again, if that was your first exposure to Noah this year, based on our recommendation on last week's show, I sincerely apologize. I would go back. Hey, a perfect match to go back and watch is last is that match I just talked about on one six, the Canovers Kaito Kiyomiya match. Go watch that. Perfect match to watch considering uh, the events at Yokohama and Kiyomiya's first uh, title challenger. It's perfect. And then go back and watch all of Takashi Sagara's title defenses. The brutal deconstruction of Goshiozaki. Poor Goshiozaki has taken some beatings this year. And he took one at the hands of Takashi Sagara a few months ago. The Masa Kitamiya match, which is very different than all of Sagara's other title defenses over the course of the year. The Nakajima match, which many people think was the best Sagara title defense. That's another one worth watching. I could recommend all of those matches with full confidence because I've seen them. So Rich and I recommend a show that we hadn't seen yet and we got burned. Look, it's going to happen. We'll be right back. We're going to talk about some New Japan topics as we move along. All right, we are back. Got a couple more topics to get to before we jump into the Thursday TV reviews to wrap up the show. So uh, placing that at the end of the show, if you're not someone who particularly cares about WWE Network television, you can skip out on the third segment of the show this week. I do this for the listener. You know, I try to arrange this show in such a way where you could easily X out and go listen to some boring podcast where they're afraid of their own shadow if you don't like the topic we're talking about. So uh, during this segment, though, segment two, I discovered an interesting fact 
when I was doing my research and doing some writing for the New Japan uh, year in review book that we're putting together for like the fourth or fifth straight year, whatever it is. And one of the tasks that I take on for the book is writing the tag team profiles. To me, the profiles are the highlight of the book. And if you've never read the book or purchased the book, what we do is every single person who stepped in a New Japan ring in that given year is given a detailed profile of what they accomplished and and what the size and shape and scope of their year looked like in New Japan. We do that for every singles wrestler gets a profile. Every tag team that I... Uh, that I deem worthy gets a profile. I'm the sole arbiter of the tag team section. So if your favorite tag team was left out, and chances are they were not, because I get go pretty deep on these things, you can blame me. Every significant trios team, ever since they rolled out the Never uh, Open Man six-man titles, gets a profile. Every wrestler who appeared in less than five New Japan matches even gets a little, you know... A little blurb, a little profile in the under five matches section, which I also am in charge of, uh, along with the tag teams and the trios. And then we even have sections for the CMLL talent that comes over for Fantastic Mania only. And this year, and that's written by the Cubs fan, by the way, so you know you're going to get good info and, and solid profiles out of that. And this year, we added a section for the Australian wrestlers who specifically worked the New Japan Down Under Tour, whatever they called that thing, when they went down to Australia and did a four-show swing. And that's going to be written by uh, Kevin Shiat, who has done stuff for the site. In fact, just this week, Kevin and a couple other guys put together uh, the Oceania-slash-Australia-slash-New Zealand uh, year-in-review article on the site and handed out awards and those sort of things. So we're on top of the Australia scene, and instead of me bumbling through the profiles of the Australian talent, I pay attention to the Australian scene, but not like this guy and not like those guys. So instead of me bumbling through those profiles, for the wrestlers that specifically worked the Australia show, we even have a section for them. So anyone who stepped into the ring for New Japan this year has a profile in the book. That includes... Uh, Jabelli on the uh, on the on the ill-fated Kenny Omega show at at the video game uh, geek convention, and uh, and and yeah, that in, that also includes um, you know the the kid toucher that Kenny booked. You know, unfortunately, he has to have a profile too. So anyone who stepped in a New Japan ring will have a profile. But the point I'm getting to here, the point I'm getting to here, is in combing through the tag teams and doing my research and deciding who was going to get a profile and who wasn't, I unearthed a fact that I found incredibly interesting, a statistic, a fact. Gato and Jado, the world-class tag team, one of my favorite tag teams of all time, they did not have a match, not only in New Japan this year, but they did not have a match anywhere in the world. Gato and Jado did not team up and have a tag team match. This is significant because that breaks a streak of 25 consecutive years of at least one tag team match with world-class tag team. They did not team this year, breaking a 25-year streak. And their New Japan streak, 
I don't have that in front of me, but that goes back, you know, about a decade or so. Even those years where where Jado was working in Noah and everything else, and and and, and you know, they always worked at least one match, either together or uh, or or in New Japan. And last year, in fact, they went four and one in New Japan. They had a pretty good year from a win loss perspective, and even had a title shot in 2017. 2018 comes around, not a single match. It's the end of an era. Gato and Jado did not team one time in a two-versus-two tag team match, breaking a 25-year streak that began in 1993. So it got me to thinking, how many tag teams in the history of wrestling have teamed together at least one time for 25 consecutive years? I don't think there's too many. I think it's it. You can count it on one hand. I instantly thought of the Rock and Roll Express. I know they go back to at least 1983. I found match records going back as far as 1980. The problem with the Rock and Roll Express, and they still team to this day, by the way, is they had periods where Ricky and Robbie didn't get along. And they both went out and found different partners, whether it was, you know, Kid Cash or, you know, uh, whoever the case may be. All the different ver- the new Rock and Roll Express, Rock and Roll Express 2000, all this nonsense, because they weren't getting along. So you had weird periods like in the aught decade where they weren't getting along and they weren't teaming much. And then, of course, famously, you had 1991 when Robert Gibson was injured with a serious injury. And Ricky Morton turned heel, joined the York Foundation, and became Richard Morton. And there's no records of them teaming in 1991. But for the purposes of matching Gato and Jado, they really, we really only need a streak from 1993 to 2018 to match world-class tag team. So I did a little bit of research... And I could not find Rock and Roll Express matches in 2001, 2002, or 2007. So there were holes there with the Rock and Roll Express between 1993, really 1992. Because they did team in 1992 when the York Foundation fell apart, Robert Gibson came back, and 2018. Well, we had a Twitter follower who goes by the handle at... GSR156 underscore. And he did some research, and he did some tremendous research, and here's what he found. He found a match that the Rock and Roll Express worked against a version of the Midnight Express at the 2007 NWA Legends Fan Fest. That show's actually on sale at our video. So that covers 2007. He also dug up footage of them facing a team called The Main Attraction on a North Carolina indie show in March 2001, and that's on YouTube. So we've got proof that they teamed in 2001. And he covered 2002 as well. He found about from an NGW Legends show where they wrestled Jamie Dundee and Buddy Landell in 2002. So, we have verifiable Video evidence that the Rock and Roll Express did in fact team in 2001, 2002, and 2007. Which means at minimum, that puts the Rock and Roll Express at 27 consecutive years. And counting, by the way, because they did team in 2018. 
1992 to 2018. So we have one verified team that can not only match but surpass world-class tag team in consecutive years teaming together, and that's the Rock and Roll Express. Thanks to GSR156 underscore for combing through YouTube and doing research and filling in those missing years. Nice job out of him. Now, if someone could find a 1991 match, we can reasonably stretch this back for sure to 1983 to 2018. But you're not going to find a 1991 match. That's where their streak, that's where the chain is going to be broken. But think of it this way. We know that they teamed together in 1980. They may have teamed together not necessarily as the Rock and Roll Express with the matching gear and all that in 78 or 79 as well. If we can go back and verify in 1981, we can also create a second streak for the Rock and Roll Express that runs from at least 1980 to 1990. uh, Yeah, 1990. That would be an 11-year streak followed by a 27-and-counting-year streak after 1991. And I can tell you that there's no way that there's another tag team ever that has two separate streaks uh, of 11 years and 27 years and counting. That's just not, that. you're not going to, don't even bother looking. That's incredible. And if they had teamed in 1991, forget it. They might have a streak that no one's going to touch, especially in an age where tag team wrestling, it's just different now. You're not going to get that long run in the major league promotions as a team. They break you up too fast. So the Rock and Roll Express is at 27 years and counting. I, I pitched the question to some historians. I asked Dave Meltzer and Chris Zellner and some other people. And the answer that they all seem to come up with, if you're looking to match, uh, find somebody else who can match 25 years, would be the Funks. Terry and Dory, uh, and Dory Jr., who, you know, from about 1965 to about 1990 is what everybody seems to agree on. It's actually longer than that. Uh, they teamed together in all Japan through 1991, or at least into 1991. You don't even have to dig hard for that. There's a tour in April of 91 where the Funks worked uh, five matches in all Japan, won them all, by the way, and, uh, you know, against good teams, Can-Am Express, Dynamite Kid and Johnny Smith, the Southern Rockers, Rex King and Steve Dahl, and then a match against Cactus Jack, and Texas Terminator Haas. That's right. Texas Terminator Haas, who you might know better as Crusher Kong, one half of the King Kongs who worked briefly in WCW in 1993. But anyway, the Funks do have matches through 1993. I'm sorry, through 1991. And Cage Match, at least, has records going back to 1966. We know that people can verify going as far back as 1965. The problem with the Funks is there seems to be a hole in 1988. In order to hit 25 years, you got to get 65 to 90. If we can find a Funks match in 1988, 
We can get them to 26 years because we can get them from 65 to 91. But at any rate, 88 seems to be the glaring hole for the Funk Brothers. But again, um, you know, 88... There, maybe there's some indie shows somewhere. I know in 89, the only match really on record is an indie match against Doug Summers and Gary Young. So it's entirely possible in 88 they worked an indie match somewhere, small-time indie match. Who knows? But that seems to be the hole for the Funks. But at minimum, we're talking, what, 23, 22 years. They've got a 22-year streak verified, which could jump to... 26 if we can find something from 1988. I just thought it was interesting. And quite honestly, I can't think of another team other than those three that would come even close. Remember, you need the same two partners. We're not doing this thing where it's the same team name but a different partner. Someone said, well, the Hart Foundation have had versions of that team going back. Well, that doesn't count. It's Bret Hart and Jim Neidhart, or it's Jim Neidhart and Owen Hart, or it's uh, even the, the team that teams in MLW today, if you want to count Davey Boy Smith Jr. and Teddy Hart and, and, and Brian Pillman Jr., but those are all different teams. Same partner, same two dudes, at least one match, 25 years in a row. That's what we're looking for. So, if you think you have anyone, I'll tell you one area where I obviously have a blind spot. Lucha. But... With all of the trios matches, I'm not even sure that there's any Lucha pairing that could say that they had at least one match for 25 years straight. With the emphasis on trios. Maybe there's some grimy indie team that's just been grinding it out for 25 years in, in, in your corner of the world somewhere. I'd love to hear about it. Verifiable 25 years straight. I think that's incredible. And it's a shame that the Gato and Jado streak ended because they were in the same promotion all year. And they were in the same units all year long, even when they switched units. So it could have happened. And it seemed like over the last few years, they were make, kind of making sure it was going to happen. But, um, you know, Jado's health, of course, is uh, he doesn't look good in the ring and Gato is winding it down too. I mean, they even had a Super Junior Tag League this year. Those guys used to participate in the Super Junior Tag Tournament when it was single elimination. They'd usually lose in the first round. One year they made a big run, which was a lot of fun. Probably like 2012 or 2013 or something like that. But even with a uh, Super Junior Tag League with an expanded field, we didn't see Gato and Jado. You know, they weren't going to work seven or eight matches. You know, they weren't going to do that. Um, but, you know, it's over. The streak is over. But I will still be writing a profile for world-class tag team in the book. That tradition will continue. Because I think that 25-year streak deserves to be noted and deserves to be celebrated. I want to move on to another topic. And that topic is the wrestler of the year. Now, there's a couple different ways of approaching wrestler of the year. There are, there is the, uh, and, 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 and people look at it 
in a couple of different ways. So let's get that out of the way now. So there's no confusion with the segment I'm about to, to put forth here. When some people think of Wrestler of the Year, they think of what the Wrestling Observer Newsletter calls most outstanding. And that's just the best bell-to-bell wrestler over the course of the year. And then when some people talk about Wrestler of the Year, they're talking about what, in Observer vernacular, is the Flair Thez MVP Award, which takes into account not just the -the bell-to-bell, but drawing ability, microphone work, impact on the business, all-encompassing whose year was it, who was the best wrestler in the world, all things considered, not just between the bells. So it kind of gets dicey. And when award season rolls around, whether it's the Tokyo Sport Awards or whether it's the Observer Awards or whether it's, uh, you know, individual promotions do awards, websites do awards, you see awards all over the place. They all treat Wrestler of the Year a little different with slightly different criteria. So the conversation we're about to have today, I'm going to lay out specifically what I'm talking about when I say Wrestler of the Year. First of all, If we're talking from the most outstanding perspective, my top three this year, in no particular order, because I have not settled on it yet, are Walter, Will Ospreay, and Zack Sabre Jr. Those, to me, were the three best wrestlers across the globe, bell to bell, match quality, in the world this year. Those three guys. They are ahead of everybody else. Now, in terms of worldwide MVP, all-encompassing, Flair Thez, that end, that changes things. Because I don't think any of those three dudes are serious contenders. Now, they're all fringe contenders. I, I have no problem entering them in a discussion. But there's just not enough there in terms of working big-time matches and drawing big-time money when you factor in the drawing component for those guys, even though all of them worked you know, main events and big-time shows to varying degrees, especially Walter. But that end of it just doesn't stack up to some of the bigger stars in the world this year who have pretty comparable resumes bell-to-bell. So when you have guys on that next tier who have tremendous bell-to-bell but were also significantly bigger stars than people like Walter, Zack Sabre Jr., and Willow Spray, it kind of vaults those people ahead. So what I really want to talk about here is the Flair Thez MVP version of the Wrestler of the Year Award. But really, I can tie in most outstanding as well. It looks to me as I look at various uh, early awards that have come out and people bantering about award season and wrestler of the year and those sorts of things, that there are a lot of people twisting themselves into a pretzel, desperately trying to find someone, anyone to vote for other than Kenny Omega. And look, I get it. I get why people don't like Kenny Omega. I get why people who used to like Kenny Omega have turned on Kenny Omega. He can be very annoying. 
He could be very boorish. He can come off self-centered and petty. The New Japan ex-CEO show down in Florida was a disaster on many levels. Controversial. Didn't draw as well as I think it should have. No matter what, Dave Meltzer and Kenny Omega himself shout at me. I disagree with them. I don't think the show was a business success. We referred to it a few minutes earlier, but the Chase and Rant stuff was an absolute disaster. No matter what you think Kenny knew or didn't know, that came off poorly. The show had almost no buzz bell to bell. Kenny didn't work a ton of New Japan matches this year. That annoys people. Look, I know the litany of reasons that people don't like Kenny Omega. And I'm not going to sit here if you're one of those people and try to change your mind. I get why you don't like Kenny Omega. That's fine. I happen to like Kenny Omega. Um, He's not my favorite wrestler. I think he's an incredible bell-to-bell wrestler. I like I like his style of match. I get why some people don't. I think he's, um, you know, I talked about most outstanding. I think Kenny Omega is right on the heels of Zack Sabre Jr. and Willow Spray and Walter this year in terms of uh, high-end output. I think Kenny Omega is pretty great. But I get why you might not think so. And I get why, if you're someone who used to think so, why he put a sour taste in your mouth this year. I totally get it. And it's valid. Even if I personally eh, don't necessarily agree or don't think the same way. But I get it. So I'm not going to sit here and try to change your mind on Kenny Omega. But award season and voting on awards really separates the wheat from the chafe in terms of who's being truly honest with themselves and who's putting bias aside. And I get it. You know, it, it, we're not, it's not an election. It's not super important. They're just dopey awards. And people should have fun with them and vote for their favorites. But if you're taking them seriously on any level, it really does separate, uh, you know, who's being biased and who isn't. And unfortunately, if you don't like Kenny Omega, you don't have a lot of other options to vote for for something like a worldwide MVP style Wrestler of the Year award. It's a bad year to fade Kenny Omega in that regard. It just is. WWE doesn't have a single contender. I won't hear it. I won't listen to it. They just don't. Your best argument might be Ronda Rousey. Think about that. Becky Lynch came on too late in the year. She's got two or three really awesome matches on the back end of the year. Did nothing for nine or ten months. Not a contender. Charlotte has been excellent. We talked about her last week. High-end stuff. But few and far between. Too much inconsistency. Couple of nice main events. A definite contender if this was a WWE only award. Worldwide basis, I can't. I can't take that. No, she can't. I can't take it it seriously. And on the male side of that roster, forget it. Who are you going to go to? Brock did not have a great year in really any regard. 
Uh, Seth Rollins? No. You go down to the sub-brands or developmental brands, and you've got people who had killer years between the bells. But if you're talking about worldwide MVP, they don't have the rest of the chops. They don't have the rest of the criteria covered. I mean, you know, you're working the Largo loop. Or you're working 205 Live where nobody is over and nobody's paying attention. And you can't get off of the pre-show match, you know, when you have your title match on a, a, a on the main show. So forget it. There's no WWE contender to turn to. There's nobody outside of New Japan in Japan really to turn to. You could talk about Takeda. And he had some incredible death matches and he did some good things. But on the business side, you know, you, you, the New Japan numbers that some of these New Japan main eventers put up was smashing Galaxy. You can't. Come on. He just doesn't have the depth in the resume either. You can put him on your list. Absolutely. I'm not going to fight with you. He might be in my match of the year when it's all said and done. turn to LA Park. I think his resume was hurt tremendously by the Roosh match at the anniversary show uh, being put on hold and not happening. I'm on record saying if that match went off and sold out and all that may have been my pick. Even without the match quality from my perspective because his matches don't do anything for me. I get that other people love him. That's fine. But even with that said, again, Award season brings out honesty and fairness. Even, you know, conceding that I don't love L.A. Park's match style, and I think it's fine, but none of his matches ever blow me away. Had that match gone off, I'd have to seriously consider punching his Chad for this award. But, as it stands, what do we have? What does his resume have? An incredible run, bumping up Arena Mexico for several weeks. Triple Mania. And not much else. You want to give him credit for the MLW house in Chicago? That's fine. Give him credit for that 2,000 fan house. That's fine too. You can throw that in there. But honestly, I don't think his case stacks up to Kenny Omega either. So, which brings me to the topic at hand and what I really want to deconstruct and talk about here. It seems as though people who desperately want to fade Kenny Omega's Wrestler of the Year case have latched on to someone who, I gotta be honest, it makes total sense why they'd pick this person. Everybody loves him. You won't find anybody, really, who doesn't like this guy. He had a good kayfabe year. Did great in tournaments. Sort of a career resurgence. He had some great matches. He's likable. He's the ace. He plays the air guitar. He's got awesome hair. He's safe. No one hates this guy. He's almost universally considered an all-timer. He was a first ballot Hall of Famer. Actually, I'm not sure if he was first ballot, but he's a Hall of Famer. 
He's a good company man. Unlike those elite guys who are only in it for themselves. I get it. He's the perfect dude to pick in a year where there's not a lot of options. A lot of you seem to think that Hiroshi Tanahashi is the wrestler of the year. And man, does that sound good coming off the tongue. Hiroshi Tanahashi, that's right. That's the wrestler of the year. He won the G1. He had three awesome matches against Kazuchika Okada. A lot of people think he's going to win on the fourth and vanquish Kenny Omega, who we all, quote-unquote, hate. Except for the silent majority that loves Kenny Omega. So I get it. I get why everyone's jumping on the Hiroshi Tanahashi bandwagon. So let's do it. Let's rally behind them. Let's compare the resumes of Hiroshi Tanahashi. The lovable Hiroshi Tanahashi. Hair envied by men and women alike. Let's compare that resume to the lazy, boorish, tiring, arrogant, self-consumed, shitty champion Kenny Omega who had a terrible year. He's pushing fans away from New Japan. He's having egregious masturbatory matches that go 70 minutes. Fuck that guy. Let's rally behind Tanahashi, who we all love. Well, let's do it. Let's build that case. Wrestle Kingdom. While Hiroshi Tanahashi was laying a wet fart against Jay White in the most disappointing match on the show, Kenny Omega was in the match with by far the most Western buzz, verified to have done business in terms of New Japan World subscriptions. And at best, was was the co-main event, and at worst, was the semi-main event of the highest drawing Wrestle Kingdom in the Bushi Road era against Chris Jericho. And it was also a great match. I don't know. Sounds like one point Kenny to me. Worked higher on the card. Had a match that was more well-received. Had a match with more buzz. Alpha versus Omega. Pop business in the West. Sold tickets in Japan. New beginning in Sapporo. Hiroshi Tanahashi worked the main event against Minoru Suzuki. Excellent match. Excellent match. Drew 4,800 fans. Definitely a feather in his cap. Didn't blow the doors off. 4,800 fans of Sapporo. But a good match. Drops the IC title. I can't really get on him for that. Nice job out of him. The problem for Tanahashi is when you look at his year, he didn't really work a ton of main events outside of that match. Kenny Omega, on the other hand, was working a main event every 10 seconds. 
But we'll get to that. New Japan Cup. Tanahashi has a couple of early round matches, and then has a pretty good match against Juice Robinson and a great match against Zack Sabre Jr. in the final, helping to get Zack Sabre Jr. over on the next level as he beat four consecutive main eventers, including the ace in the final. I got no beef with Tanahashi's New Japan Cup. The problem for Tanahashi is he didn't have a good G1. Bell to bell. This was his worst G1 in years. Outside of the Okada and Ibushi matches, there really isn't much there. He was in the A block, which was a dud night after night. And we're accustomed to Hiroshi Tanahashi G1s where he just kills it every night. He's older now. He's working less shows too, by the way. Everyone's getting on Kenny Omega. It's not like Tanahashi's working 180 matches. And he took it easy in the G1. I don't blame him for that. But Kenny Omega had a significantly better G1 than Tanahashi. Match for match. He had six or seven matches that ranged from really good to incredible. Let's look internationally. When Tanahashi left Japan, he worked tag matches on on Ring of Honor joint shows. His only singles match was against Hangman Page in the UK. Was always positioned in the middle on the ROH New Japan shows. When he worked for New Japan in the US, in San Francisco, and in Long Beach, he worked mid-card tag team matches teaming with Kushida. One of those was against Hangman Page and Marty Skrull. The other against Gato and Jay White. What was Kenny Omega doing internationally this year? He was main eventing San Francisco and Long Beach. He was main eventing the biggest ROH show in the company's history. He was main eventing for New in Poughkeepsie, New York. Which, by the way, drew the largest gate in the Mid-Hudson Civic Center's history... And that building has been housing wrestling for decades, including WWE. So internationally, it's not even close. Kenny Omega headlines Mid-Hudson Civic Center against Phoenix and draws the biggest gate in the building's long and storied history. Kenny Omega headlines for ROH in New Orleans and draws 6,000 fans against Cody which was the biggest show in the history of Ring of Honor. Kenny Omega headlines against Cody again just a few weeks later in San Francisco, and they draw 6,300 fans again doing the same match for the same traveling crowd, and they still draw 6,000-plus fans the second time. Kenny Omega headlines in Long Beach when New Japan comes back to America, all while Hiroshi Tanahashi is working mid-card tag team matches. Totally inconsequential. When it comes to international, when it comes to outside of Japan, it's not even close. It's Kenny Omega in a landslide. But let's talk about some of Tanahashi's huge positives, and that's the three matches with Okada. 
Dontaku. He wrestles Okada. 6,300 fans. Great match. The G1 match in Budokan, 6,180. Another great match. And then Destruction and Kobe for the briefcase. They draw another 6,400 fans and another great match. By my own personal ratings, four and a half, four and a half, four and three quarters. They've wrestled a million times and they found new ways to deliver in three matches that were very different from one another and different from what they've done in the past. They knocked it out of the park again and they drew over 6,000 fans every time. That is the heart of Tanahashi's Wrestle of the Year argument right there. Those three matches. Oddly, outside of the Suzuki match at, at, at New Beginning in Sapporo, there was only main events. There's only significant main events. The G1 match against Okada was awesome. Drew over 6,000 fans. The very next night in the same building, Kenny Omega drew 12,000 fans in his match against Kota Ibushi. This was the second biggest New Japan show of the year. Behind the Tokyo Dome. Where at worst, Kenny was in the semi-main event. At best, in the co-main event. You know who headlined the third biggest New Japan show of the year? It wasn't Tanahashi. It was Kenny Omega at Dominion. 11,832. Packed Dominion to watch him win the title from Okada. Tanahashi's biggest main event this year drew 6,400 fans. Kenny Omega had two main events that nearly doubled that. One of them came the night after, in the same building... That Tanahashi drew 6180 against Okada. Now, Tanahashi Okada had been done a million times at that point, and Kenny Omega versus Ibushi was protected. I get it. But again, award season brings out honesty, and who just looks at the facts? Award season is scoreboard season. At Dominion, Tanahashi worked a six-man tag in the middle of the card. In San Francisco, as we've gone over, and in L.A., he worked mid-card tag team matches, teaming with Kushida that nobody remembers. At King of Pro Wrestling, he worked his third match with Jay White, the best of their three. The Wrestle Kingdom match was highly disappointing, even if it improves a little on a rewatch. The G1 match was not a great match at all. Very average match with a lot of shenanigans. It was okay. There was nothing wrong with it. The third match was probably the best match. Do you disagree, Lexi? What was Kenny Omega doing at King of Pro Wrestling? Well, King of Pro Wrestling might be the biggest feather in Kenny Omega's cap. It certainly quieted down a lot of people. The sales, the ticket sales for King of Pro Wrestling were very sluggish leading up to the show. 
There was no main event announced because we were waiting for other New Japan shows to happen before they figured out what was going on with the main event of the show at King of Pro Wrestling. The title match wasn't announced until the very last week. And after the three-way, the Kenny Omega, Cody, Kota Ibushi three-way, which supposedly everybody hated and nobody wanted to see, the talk among Western geeks was this match and Kenny Omega are driving fans away from New Japan Pro Wrestling, sold the remaining 6,000 tickets after that match was announced in the same week and sold out King of Pro Wrestling. Now, I know all of you that hate Kenny Omega very badly wanted to hang your hat on King of Pro Wrestling as the event that was going to take down Kenny Omega. But unfortunately, once again, scoreboard didn't work out for you. Kenny Omega defended against Tomohiro Ishii on a destruction show, a match that a lot of people aren't talking about uh, anymore or after the fact. It was a pretty good match. I'd say it was a damn good match. But no one's really pointing to that Ishii match you know, in this hugely disappointing Kenny Omega title reign, which is all I hear from people, where... He drew 6,000 fans against Cody in what really was a rematch that did the same amount of fans as the first match did without the benefit of taking place at WrestleMania weekend. And then the three-way match that supposedly nobody wanted to see sells 6,000 tickets after it's announced. And then we have the Ishii match, which no one's really talking about. Little B show main event, right? Drew 3,761 fans for that destruction show, mid sized building. That's the best attended show for destruction in that building in three years. 2017, they did 3,600 fans. And in 2016, they did 2,800 fans in the same building for the same show. Year to year comps. Kenny Omega's title defense against Tomohiro Ishii was the best drawing show in that building at destruction in three years. But again, nobody wants, he's running fans off. Remember that. So while Kenny Omega is setting records in cities and buildings and for promotions on the business side, Hiroshi Tanahashi is headlining four shows all year. The best of which did 6,400 fans. And he's working underneath Kenny Omega on the rest of the shows. In some cases, way underneath.
And that's just the business side. It's a clean sweep for Kenny Omega when you're talking about business. He crushes Tanahashi internationally outside of Japan. He crushes Tanahashi inside of their own promotion, including destroying him the very next night in the same building during a G1. Headline the second and third highest drawing shows in the company for the year and either semi-main evented or co-main evented, number one, you got to go pretty far down the list to find a Tanahashi main event on that on that list. I started to do it, but I just it, I didn't want to embarrass the guy because I like him. So from a business perspective, I mean, it's not even close. Kenny Omega headlined successful shows in two different countries and broke very multiple records while doing it. Kenny Omega broke either attendance or gate or, or you know records for like three different companies this year. You want to talk bell to bell? This is where things become less about the scoreboard, which I have won in a total blowout, by the way, and they become more about your personal opinions, which I'm not going to argue as hard. I can't, I'm not interested in that. I'm not interested in getting in circular arguments about what match who thought was better. But, you know, if we're talking about the general consensus that I see, Kenny Omega has had about a half a dozen matches that had legitimate match-of-the-year buzz as soon as they happened. I'm not sure Tanahashi had one, other than the Cork and Hall tag on 12-15, which, by the way, he was facing Kenny Omega, and which, by the way, Hiroshi Tanahashi was very clearly the fourth-best person in that match. In fact, he was a total ghost in that match, like he is in most tag team matches. Again, I don't blame the guy. I like him. But when people think about that 1215 15 Corican tag, which I've seen people throwing five stars at, Rich Krejci, five stars. Dave Meltzer, five stars. Rando Twitter guy, five stars. I didn't quite see it at that level, but this is a match of the year contender, even though I personally disagree. And Tanahashi was the fourth best person in the match, and Omega was in the same match. But you have the Omega match against Okada from Dominion. You have the Golden Lovers versus Young Bucks match. Again, I don't think that's a match of the year contender for me, but a lot of people consider that a match of the year contender for them. Go read the tweets and the message board posts after that match happened. Go listen to the show, the, the podcast and everything else. Kenny Omega versus Phoenix in Poughkeepsie. When that match, the night of the match, people live were saying it was the best match they saw all year. Many people. When it finally hit tape, a lot of people were saying the same. Again, I don't agree. But I have to consider the consensus. You've got the Okada match, the Phoenix match, the tag on 1215, 
the Golden Lovers tag in the U.S. The Tetsuya Naito G1 match. Kenny Omega in the big spot knocked it out of the park all year long with matches that had legitimate match of the year buzz and still do. You look at Tanahashi's bell to bell. He had the three Okada matches. Tremendous matches. I'm not sure one of those matches was getting the kind of praise that some of those Okada matches I named got. Now, they're, they're close. My favorite was the Destruction match. And people were throwing five stars at a lot of the Okada-Tanahashi matches. I'm not saying they weren't. I'm not here to argue that Tanahashi had a bad bell-to-bell year. I'm here to argue that it doesn't stack up to Kenny's. Outside of those Okada matches, there's not a ton more there. You've got the Suzuki match from Sapporo. Maybe you have the Zack Sabre Jr. New Japan Cup final. And you've got the Cork and Tag, which already we discussed. That's not really a Tanahashi match. Let's talk about Kenny Omega, the tag team wrestler. Now that we're on the topic. Forget the single stuff. I haven't even touched it. He had four or five main events as a tag team wrestler. Golden Lovers was the hottest storyline in wrestling the first half of the year. And they worked main events all throughout the year in multiple countries. And knocked it out of the park in just about all of them. They main evented Honor Rising against Cody and Marty Skrull. They main evented Strong Style Evolved against the Young Bucks in a match that has match of the year buzz. Of course, they main evented against Tanahashi and Ospreay 12-15 in Corican Hall. They main evented in Long Beach against Kazuchika Okada and Tomohiro Ishii. Kenny Omega has a better tag team main event resume than a lot of wrestler of the year candidates have overall uh, main event resumes. Golden Lovers might be, they might win tag team of the year. This dude might win tag team of the year. Business blows Tanahashi out of the water. Bell to bell. Being fair and objective, I don't see how Tanahashi's resume stacks up. G1 wasn't as good. Not as many high-end match of the year buzzworthy matches. Not as many great matches overall. Kenny's got the golden love. He's got stuff on the tag team side that Tanahashi doesn't have. It was just Kenny Omega's year. And I like Hiroshi Tanahashi. I do. He's the great hope. He really He's the great hope 
for award season. But I have bad news for you if you don't like Kenny Omega. He's going to clean up, and quite honestly, he deserves it. Small sample size. But the New Japan-focused podcast on this very network, the Super J-Cast, did their year-end awards. And Kenny Omega won every award he was realistically eligible for. He won like five of them. The silent majority loves Kenny Omega. This idea that his title reign is a failure and he's not a draw and nobody likes him. It is rooted in myth. There are no facts to back it up. You could tell me a team didn't play well. But if I point to the scoreboard and the score is 48 nothing, you were objectively wrong. Hiroshi Tanahashi cannot be the wrestler of the year. In fact, I think you've got a much better argument with L.A. Park or Kazuchika Okada or even Kota Ibushi. You're not going to like it. Some of you are not going to like it. And it's going to be a hard pill to swallow. But Kenny Omega is going to clean up the rest of award season. We'll be back with the Thursday TV reviews. All right, we're back with the Thursday TV reviews, which we post every Thursday on our Patreon page, on the subscriber side, which is a recap of all of the WWE Network content that they air on Wednesdays, which usually includes 205 Live, NXT, and two episodes of NXT UK. Uh, We do Monday TV reviews as well, where we take a look at Ring of Honor, Impact Wrestling, and MLW Fusion. So if you aren't a Patreon subscriber, if you do not uh, subscribe to our paywall content, Go over to Patreon, throw Voices of Wrestling in the search box, pull up our page, take a look at all the content that we put up. We usually put up between 6 to 10 hours of content per week. Rich right now is currently doing his Kings of the Dome, Tokyo Dome uh, main event reviews with the producer, Andrew Rich. And we always have all kinds of other projects going in addition to some of our uh, recurring uh things that we do on the subscriber side uh, like instant reaction to major events 
or television shows or 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 Joe and Rich recommend matches to each other, which is one of our more uh, our popular features on the pay side. Rich uh, doing match reviews with the nurse. I'm not sure if he's officially titled that show yet, but he's got a couple of those up there as well that people really seem to enjoy. So uh, check us out. Uh, check out our subscription service. It's on Patreon. Patreon, uh, we felt, was the most trusted place to do uh, paywall content. Uh, people know Patreon. People trust trust Patreon. So check it out. And uh, right now, I'll give you a little bit of taste of what we do over there with the Thursday TV reviews. No 205 Live this week. It was a recap show. I'm not reviewing a recap show. It's a waste of everybody's time. So uh, no point in doing that. Didn't even bother watching it. But still, we've got two episodes of NXT UK to go through, and of course, NXT proper. We're creeping closer and closer to the NXT UK takeover, which means we're going to go down, presumably, to one episode of NXT UK per week, which is going to lighten my load a little bit on these reviews. But, you know, it is a lot to get through on Wednesdays if you want to consume everything. With four hours of new content added to the network each week. So now maybe with Mixed Match Challenge in the rearview mirror. Now maybe with the uh, with the uh, NXT UK TakeOver coming up. We can revert back. 205 Live might be live again. And be moved back to Tuesdays. And Wednesdays might be sort of a uh, NXT block. With one episode of NXT UK. And one episode of NXT proper. But... Um, obviously, uh, who knows what they're going to do. That seems like it would make sense though, but we soldier on with a double episode of NXT UK. And it's funny because you know that they weren't intended to air this way because they say things during the course of these shows. Like, you know, they set up matches for quote unquote next week, which really means in the show that's going to, uh, air, you know, 20 minutes from now. Or sometimes they'll say two weeks ago, and you know, uh, you know, it, and really, you know, it was it was it was two shows ago. So you can tell that, uh, you know, they they didn't intend to do these back to back episodes. I don't know what happened. I don't know what delayed them. I don't know what took them so long to get them going. But at some point, the decision was made to double up on these things every week until presumably the takeover takes place, and then I, I assume they'll do a new set of tapings after that takeover, but, uh, we're creeping closer where the, some of the matches are taking shape. The spoilers are out there. If you really need to know what's going on, the way we do these TV reviews is I try not to ever read spoilers or know what's going on, uh, before I watch the stuff. Now, sometimes that's impossible. Okay. Sometimes I do see spoilers. Sometimes I, I, uh, I I do know where, where things are leading, but a lot of times I don't. So, if you follow along with me when I do these TV reviews on Mondays and Wednesdays, uh, you're really getting uh, you're getting things from the perspective of just a common viewer sitting down who is just enjoying a wrestling show and doesn't necessarily know what's what's coming up. But uh, but look, sometimes the nature of what I do, it's impossible not to see spoilers. You know, I can scroll through the observer if I see spoilers coming. Uh, but something's always going to hit your Twitter feed. People are always going to be talking about something. It's not the end of the world if I get spoiled. But I do like watching these shows. I prefer to watch them fresh. So, episode one this week of NXT UK. And first, you know, when it comes to NXT UK, you know, I see a lot of people dumping on the show lately. And I don't think NXT UK is uh, the greatest hour of television in the world. I think it's it's a mostly average show 
which most weeks, not every week, most weeks has a very good main event. Some weeks has an excellent main event. And then the rest of the show is a mixed bag. I think it's booked uh, relatively well. I think um, everything that happens on the show tends to lead to something. Is it the most exciting booking in the world? Is it an action-packed hour? No. Is it logical? Does it move from step to step? Does it go, is there solid A, B, C booking? Uh, is it, is it, is it, is it uh, episode, episodic from week to week where one week leads into the other? Yeah. Yeah, I, I think it's all of those things. Again, it's not going to blow you away. Okay? It's not peak, you know, Mid-South or ECW or, or you know, uh, Jim Crockett Promotions, television, whatever your favorite era uh, if you like the Attitude Era or whatever, it's not peak uh, television. You know, it's not uh, super high-end peak television, but it's entertaining and it gets the job done, and it's logical and it makes sense. I don't think the show has ever been terrible. There's been some episodes that were below average, but usually the next episode's pretty good. It bounces back. So, uh, in terms of all the shows I review on Mondays and Thursdays. It's it's on the upper end in terms of consistency. But I do see a lot of people dumping on it. And I think some of that has to do with the fact of all of the drama coming down from WWE UK, the new contracts, how restrictive they are, and then some of the talent, especially some of the top talent on NXT UK, coming out and sort of standing up for WWE and defending the contracts and telling people to calm down and all that drama we've been discussing over the last few weeks, I don't think the talent comes off well. I think people are very angry at WWE right now. And uh, quite honestly, I think it makes it hard for people to sit down and sink their teeth into this show and enjoy it. I do. So I do think that has uh, something to do with the angst. Now, again, it's not the most exciting hour of television. So it's not exactly a hard show to dump on if you don't want to like it. But watching it objectively and watching it every week, I think most of the time the promos are excellent and it's the best promo work you're getting in WWE. That includes Raw and SmackDown. I think it's the best promo work you're going to get in the entire company across any brand. Uh, The promos come across authentic. The promos come across less... uh, Less polished, but in a good way. I think the promos on Raw and SmackDown in particular uh, oftentimes come off super polished, but it's a negative. If that makes sense. And I think there's a lot of good talkers on NXT UK. Zach Gibson's an excellent talker. Jordan Jordan Devlin's a guy who's blown me away with his ability on the mic. Eddie Dennis is a tremendous talker. And I think people who you haven't expected to cut a good promo, uh, in some cases, have done so on this show. So, um, you know, now it does have Johnny Saint, which takes everybody down about 19 notches, but we'll get to that. But I think the promos are good. The main event on the show is usually good. Sometimes it's excellent. And then you got a mixed bag for the rest of the hour. There's a lot of jags on this brand. A lot of jags. And if you're not a subscriber... We have the unofficial JAG championship that we track on this show when these JAGs face each other. Current champion is the JAG to end all JAGs, Joe Connors. There is no bigger JAG than Joseph Connors. And he is the current JAG champion. Successfully defended against Jack Stars a few weeks ago. 
So there's a lot of Jags on the show. I don't need Dan Mahoney. I don't need Kenny Williams. I mean, these guys are dry as a bone. I get it. So it's not a perfect hour of television by any means. I think Isla Dawn is being pushed way too hard. She stinks at everything. Um, but overall, I do think people dump on it a little too hard. But it's not a show that I think that people want to watch because they have a bad taste in their mouth right now with everything that's going on in the scene. So let's take a look at the first episode this week. We open up with Johnny Saint and, uh, and, and the real GM, Sid Scala. You know, who backed into a pretty good TV role and was more lucky than this Sid Scala, who was being used basically as an enhancement guy on the show, just a dude there to do jobs. But Johnny Saint is so incompetent and can't remember, you know, two lines uh, to put together half the time and is easily the worst promo in Major League Wrestling. Okay, so they don't trust Johnny Saint anymore. So they 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 add a assistant general manager, and Nigel McGuinness in commentary does the bit from the office, uh, you know, the assistant to the general manager, so that you know, Michael Scott Dwight Schrute dynamic. And um, so Scala, basically, what they did is they put him in that role to do all of the talking because Scala is a good talker. Again, who knew that Sid Scala was some kind of you know savant behind the mic, but the guy's a good talker. So now they drag, you know, uh, Johnny Saint out there. He's sort of just a figurehead and uh, a figurehead GM. And Sid Scala does all the talking because he could actually remember, you know, more than one line and not botch it. So we had Sid Scala and Johnny Saint and uh, they announce the takeover officially, which we all knew about. This live crowd did not. Huge pop for that. Basically how these Sid Scala, Johnny Saint promos go now is Sid Scala announces all of the pertinent information, and then Johnny Saint puts an exclamation point on everything. They don't give him more than two words to say, though. That's too dangerous. That's dangerous. So, Sid Scala makes the whole announcement, and then Johnny Saint will say something like, NXT UK TakeOver! And throw his arm up in the air, and everybody cheers, and, you know, then Sid leads him back to the back uh, to hide again. But that's a recurring theme now. Sid Scala does all the talking. Johnny Saint, who... They have to find a graceful way to just kind of like ask him not to come around anymore. Just give the job to Scala. He's way better at it. He doesn't carry the the gravitas of a Johnny Saint. But, uh, you know, someone suggested on Twitter that they should give that job to Paige. It's not the worst idea. It really isn't. But at the same time, she kind of has that whole main roster, you know, mystique to her. I don't know if you want to bring that to the NXT UK brand. I don't know. But Johnny Saint's awful. That's the point. So they announced the takeover. Tony Storm comes out, and she officially challenges Rhea Ripley for the NXT women's title based on the fact, uh, with her successes in the Mae Young Classic over the past couple of years and everything else. So it'll be Tony Storm challenging Rhea Ripley. Uh, Johnny Saint agrees to this. So that's your uh, uh, NXT UK women's championship match. We had... Uh, Kenny Williams against Jordan Devlin. Kenny Williams with his pal, Amir Jordan at ringside. They're two smiling jag babyfaces that never win a match. Devlin beats Kenny Williams here in a shockingly good match for an extended squash. Jordan Devlin knocks it out of the park every time he's asked to do anything. You put him in a main event, he knocks it out of the park. You put him in the main event of... uh, uh, you know, and, and that goes for indie shows, uh, television main events on NXT UK. He'll knock it out of the park. 
TV main event, knocks it out of the park. Indy show, stick him in there with Walter in the main event, knocks it out of the park. You ask him to cut a promo, he knocks it out of the park. You ask him to, you know, beat uh, Kenny Williams in six minutes on TV, he knocks it out of the park. Jordan Devlin finished 11th in the FSM 50, Fighting Spirit Magazine. Subscribe online. If you live in Europe, buy it at newsstands or whatever the hell it is you people have over there. Okay? They employ me so you can read me in that fine publication. And I contributed to that FSM 50. And Jordan Devlin finished 11th on that collaborative list. 11th best wrestler in the world this year. And it was well earned. I'm telling you. I'm telling you. Sometimes these things take time. With the hardcores, we noticed his breakout in 2018. Everybody else is going to notice Jordan Devlin in 2019. I expect him to have a monster year. Especially depending how the lay of the land works out and you know he can continue working the high-profile indies in Europe. He's given indication that he can keep working OTT, but we'll see. We had the uh, debut of Marcel Bartel. Well, he didn't have the debut. They announced his debut for quote-unquote next week. This was episode one, so we're going to talk about his match in episode two. That's, of course, Axel Dieter Jr. He's gotten no momentum going whatsoever in NXT proper to this point. So I think this is a good move to use him on the NXT UK side. I think he has a much better chance of finding some some momentum and connecting with, with the crowd in NXT UK as opposed to NXT proper. I just do. Um, so And he really was going nowhere fast in NXT. He made TV a couple of times, did a couple TV jobs. Wasn't treated like a total jabron, but he didn't strike me as a guy that they were ever going to push hard there. So we'll see what he can do on this brand. We had a backstage segment with uh, Johnny Saint, Sid Scala, and Rhea Ripley. Uh, they convened. Rhea Ripley uh, said she wanted some competition before NXT UK takeover. So Saint and Scala... Uh, headed into Saint's office and came out literally three seconds later. I don't know if this was meant to be comedy or not, but it was fucking hilarious. They had a three-second conversation behind a closed door, came out. Sid announces that Johnny Saint agrees to that, because they don't let Johnny Saint talk, of course. And uh, Rhea Ripley will be taking on uh, Deanna Perrazzo, the uh, virtuoso of NXT, quote-unquote, next week. We had Dan Mahoney, a proud member of the JAG division of NXT UK, Taking on Eddie Dennis. And uh, let's see what we had here. We had uh, Eddie Dennis was attacked. So uh, he wins it by DQ. He was attacked by by uh, Mastiff. And and Mahoney was pissed because he's like, what the hell, man? I got nothing to do with, the, with this beef. And I'm losing matches here uh, by DQ. But uh, Eddie Dennis gets a DQ win over Dan Mahoney as they continue presumably uh, towards building to a Eddie Dennis versus uh, Mastiff uh, NXT UK uh, takeover match. We'll see, though. Sid Scala announced that the tag team title semifinals will take place in two weeks, which means next week we're going to get the first of the two tag team title semifinals uh, on, on, on the show next week and maybe the other semifinal on the second show next week. We'll see. We had Zach Gibson giving a Liverpool tour, which amounted to nothing more than a pre-tape where he, you know, cut a very cocky heel promo while uh, while his uh, tag team partner, Drake, uh, James Drake, kind of just looked on like he always does. Is there anyone who's more of a hanger-on uh, than Drake? I mean, 
not so much in other places, but on NXT UK, I mean, it is the Zach Gibson show, and Drake is just along for the ride. I mean, good for him, but that's really what it's all about. We had a tag team match next, and this was almost, almost the rare tag team jag match, but there was one man who was not a jag. So uh, we almost crowned jag tag team champions, but the presence of T-Bone, T-Bone, who I love, prevented this from being a jag tag team match. His partner is full jag, and that's Saxton Huxley. And they took on a couple of jags in Jack Stars and Tucker. Total jags there. So we had three jags, but because we didn't have a fourth, I cannot call this an official jag match. And unfortunately, I cannot crown the jag tag team champions. We'll see if that happens at some point. Huxley and T-Bone win. Uh, They lost their last TV match, so they're, you know, Got their heat back a little here against two guys who never win in Jack Stars and Tucker. And, of course, Tucker is rumored to have asked out of his contract. And uh, maybe it's because of the way he was being used on TV. But a nice win for T-Bone, who, by the way, they're pushing the idea that he's a gypsy again. If you recall the first UK tournament, he was like full-on gypsy with all kinds of garish, uh, you know, uh, jewelry. And they were implying that the man was a thief and, you know, is vagabond and, you know... They kind of pivoted away from that when the show rolled out. But now we had Nigel McGuinness going on and on about this man's gypsy heritage and how proud he is of it and all that. So uh, I hope they go full gypsy again. I love that shit. So T-Bone and Huxley get a big win. Isla Dawn cut one of the worst promos that your eyes will ever see or your ears will ever hear. Luckily, Ginny saved us and, uh, and stepped in and talked some shit to her. So it looks like we're headed towards a Ginny Isla Dawn match. And I've picked on Isla Dawn a lot. I've kind of laid off in the last couple weeks on the subscription side during these reviews because she had some matches that weren't, you know, uh, terrible at all the last couple of weeks. But this promo was the shits. And I'll tell you what, now I can't unsee it. Brandon Stroud, who writes the reviews for this show over on, uh, uh, what is the name of that site? Uh, Uprocks. The Uprocks, the with spandex gimmick. Okay, Brandon Stroud uh, mentioned in his review that if you watch Isla Dawn, her tongue is always out. And it's true. She's always, like, it's like she's Michael Jordan, uh, you know, dribbling up the court facing the double team. Like, her tongue is always hanging out of her mouth. And now I can't unsee it. It's very distracting. She's like MJ, rising up for a jumper. I don't know what's going on. It's like this little tick that she has. I guess when she thinks, she just does weird things with her mouth. Like, you know, I'm an Italian guy, so I talk with my hands. I don't even know what I'm doing it. You know, I'm talking with my hands right now. Maybe when she's, like, thinking, she just does shit with her tongue. It's bizarre. And and now that I can't unsee it, I have cursed the rest of you with it because now you won't be able to unsee it. And we had our main event, which was Joe Coffey versus Leguero. And Leguero's a guy who, to me, he's just, he's a jag with a mask. The only thing stopping Leguero from being a full-on jag is that dopey mask. Because he's just boring as shit. He's just not very good. He's solid, and he'll give you a professional match. But does Leguero ever light your world on fire? He's a jag with a mask. But I have to give credit, the match with Joe Coffey was very good. They put together an excellent match here. Might have been the best Leguero match I've ever seen. And I've been watching this guy for years. You know, 
And it's not like it was some incredible four-star match. It was a really good, strong TV match. And Coffey is a guy who they're obviously pushing very hard. And he gets a big win over Liguero here. Liguero is a guy who, you know, he wins some and he loses some on this show. He loses this one. But I have to give credit to Liguero. He was very good here. This match ruled. As we move on to NXT UK Episode 2, as we quickly move on to next week, we had Gibson and Drake. And they took on, let me tell you this, let me tell you this, Wild Boar and his new partner, the primate, Jason Melrose. I've never seen this primate. Okay? Now, from what I understand, he had a a badly broken jaw or broken face or something, and he had to retire earlier this year. It healed better than his doctors expected. He's back in the ring. Wild Boar, with apologies to Bird, okay, has never had a better tag team partner than this primate. They just go together so well. And I really hope that, you know, they were here just to do a job to Gibson and Drake. But I hope that this team sticks around, and I hope they get a modicum of a push. I was into the boar and the primate. You know, sometimes you put guys together, and they just have a weird chemistry, and it just works. And I'd like to see them turn heel, too. I think a heel turn with boar and primate, and they're like a bruising, nasty heel tag team, I think that would work. But this had good action. Gibson and Drake win. Next up, Mastiff is ready for action. And uh, his opponent was coming down to the ring. Kenta. That's right. He was facing Kenta, everybody. Josh Morell. Josh Morell, if you remember, that one goofball who set Twitter on fire a few weeks ago when 205 Live was being taped in the UK. And this dude sitting up in the rafters couldn't tell the difference between Hideo Itami and Josh Morell who looked nothing alike because he thought it said Atami on the man's tights. So anyway, this was the same dude, Josh Morell, but uh, any Dennis attacked him up on the stage, sort of revenge for the week before, and uh, Mastiff uh, he never ended up facing Josh Morell, and I believe it was just a no contest because the match never began. So We had Joe Connors... The Jag champion. It's good to see the Jag champ getting some mic time to put the title over. But uh, one thing I learned here from this Joseph Connors promo is his promos are even worse than his matches. I mean, this was so boring. The guy just has no life. He's got no juice. Joseph Connors, it, it's, it's appropriate that he's the Jag champion of NXT UK because he's the jaggiest Jag possible. You can't be more Jag than Joseph Connors. It's not possible. And this promo was even worse than his boring, dry, in-ring, quote-unquote, action. He's just a fucking bore. The only guy that can match Joseph Connors in the JAG rankings is Richard Holiday of MLW. Have you seen this guy? Have you seen this Richard Holiday on MLW? Let me make sure I'm getting his name right. Pretty sure his name is Richard Holiday. Yeah, Richard Holiday. Um, MLW uses him from time to time. And the thing about Richard Holiday is he his gimmick is most marketable. His Twitter handle is at most marketable. And he couldn't be further from marketable. He is just a generic 
pasty white dude who, you know, slaps on a chin lock, maybe throws a drop kick now and then. Yeah, and is about as exciting as a sack of flour. That's Richard Holiday. I would love to see Richard Holiday against Joseph Connors. I really would. The two driest, least exciting wrestlers on the face of the planet. So Marcel Barthel did make his NXT UK debut against Mark Andrews. And Fabian Ackner continues to be a thorn in the side of Andrews. This is a nice little feud. So Ackner comes down, he fucks with Andrews, costs him the match against Barthel. So maybe we'll have a Mark Andrews-Fabian Ackner rematch at the TakeOver. We'll see. We have a Tony Storm vignette. We had a Travis Banks vignette. And then we had our main event, which was Rhea Ripley defending the title before TakeOver against Deanna Perrazzo, dangerous opponent. Fans are chanting, whoop, whoop, at uh, Deanna in reference to her her beau, Marty Skrull. So she teases them by teasing the finger break spot early in the match. And Rhea Ripley wins this one in what appears to be a very sporting contest. Good match. But then attacks Deanna in the post-match, and Tony Storm comes down and makes the save to put some heat on their match at the TakeOver. So Rhea Ripley, Deanna Perrazzo, pretty good main event. Not bad at all. Of episode two. Again, both of these episodes were uh, very much how I described NXT UK at the top. Solid main events, very good TV main events, and a mixed bag for the rest of the hour. Although these two shows, there wasn't much uh, that that I can call bad. A lot of it was, I mean, the the, the Devlin-Kenny-Williams match was very good for an extended squash. Uh, the Eddie Dennis and uh, Mastiff stuff is well built. It, it, it's you know, it's it's all logical, well built, basic booking, and I don't have a problem with that, provided you give me some good matches now and then, and they have. I think people dump too hard on the show. Let's move on to NXT proper this week. Interesting show. We had a four way to determine the number one contender to the women's title, and a match against Shayna Baszler. At the next takeover, it was Lacey Evans, Mia Yim, Io Shirai, and Bianca Belair. Bianca Belair wins this, but there's a couple things to note. Lacey Evans got a uh, nearly got the the win uh, by uh, nailing Mia Yim with the women's right, but the pin was broken up, so they did protect Lacey Evans to an extent. Io Shirai, same thing. She did hit the moonsault, but her pin attempt was broken up. But it was Bianca Belair. Winning in again. She breaks up the pin attempt by Io Shirai following that moonsault with the hair whip, which she does not overdo. The hair whip, you know, a lot of matches she doesn't use the hair whip at all, but she uses it to break up the pin, and then uh, and then she follows quickly with her finish to win the match and earn the title shot. And that match against Shayna Baszler, the Bianca Belair-Shayna Baszler match, is going to be really interesting. And it's going to be really interesting because... You have two wrestlers who I fucking love. I love both of them. I love their upside. I love what they've done so far. But they're both very inexperienced. So there's nobody in that match to kind of carry things. There's no one there to carry the less inexperienced wrestler because they're both inexperienced. 
So that's going to be interesting. If if at any point during that match, there's a blown spot or uh, they kind of forget what they're doing or there's some awkwardness, who steps up and who saves the thing? Or if the match just, you know, runs along and goes smoothly. Two inexperienced wrestlers, love their upside. A huge spot for Bianca Belair. This will be by far uh, the biggest spot that she's been in. A one-on-one championship match on a takeover. So I'm interested to see Bianca Belair in a big spot. I think she'll handle herself well. I think she'll do well, but you never know. And I'm interested to see Shayna Baszler work with a far less experienced wrestler than she's been used to working with so far. Someone on her level experience-wise. And then you have the whole dichotomy of their style of work, which is very different. So I'm really excited about Bianca Belair versus Shayna Baszler. And WWE, with really the women carrying the main roster right now, you look beneath the surface at their developmental brands or their sub-brands, whatever you want to call them at this point. But you've got Shayna Baszler, Bianca Belair, Rhea Ripley, Tony Storm. I mean, they're ready to just, when things get remotely stale on the main roster, they can inject so much fresh talent into that mix. And it would all add something really fun. Watch, they'll call up Isla Dawn. So anyway, next up, we had Jackson Riker of Beards and Buns. Of course, that's the Forgotten Sons. Lots of beards, lots of man buns, lots of snarling, lots of, uh, you know, wet men with wet beards. Um, and he took on Mitch Taverna in a job match. This was weird because for some reason, like the uh, there was no audio, there was no uh, commentary track. So Jackson Riker, you know, is beating up Mitch Taverna and there's no commentary for some reason. There, there was audio because you could hear the crowd and you could hear like the, the banter between the other members of Beards and Bun, like yelling at the referee, yelling at Riker, yelling at Taverna. But the commentary track for some reason was like missing from this match. And it, it, I don't feel like they did it on purpose. Like there was no reason for it. So how does that get by like quality control and hit the air? I don't know how that happens. And not only that, it's like, um, I, I watched a, a replay of this. So they didn't even fix it later on. So I don't know, just totally bizarre. So uh, Riker defeats Taverna. Uh, Jackson Riker is just, I mean, he's the former gunner from TNA. Um, look, he's he's a jag with a beard who snarls a lot. I mean, there's nothing to get excited about. He's got a bunch of X's in his names and Y's and weird letters and He's just, it, it's a gimmick and a name from another era, and I just, I does nothing for me. We had Tommaso Ciampa doing a bunch of rambling in the hallway again. I don't know what the hell he was talking about. Something about Johnny Gargano going after the North American title, and he's trying to bring Johnny Gargano uh, to the dark side or whatever. I, who the fuck knows what's going on? I am so disconnected from all of that. It's not my thing. And my brain instantly turns off when, you know, Tommaso Ciampa is... Uh, is stammering on and on in, in a hallway talking about Johnny Gargano. Um, and then we had our main event, which was Heavy Machinery, finally getting their tag team title shot against Undisputed Era. Otis took the fall here, which was a bit surprising. Heavy Machinery, of course, being called up. 
This may have been their job out of the territory. Who knows? Maybe they were waiting for them to finish up down there before they start them on Raw after the new year. Um, I don't know when they're starting up, but they were already announced for Raw, so we'll see. I think Heavy Machinery is on the fast track to main event. And when I say main event, I don't mean main eventing pay-per-views. I mean main event, the uh, uh, filling the hole that Rhino has created, because uh, I, I think they... Uh, they, they, they are, they're just, they're goofy. It's a goofy act. Um, not a fan of them at all, especially Otis. Tucker Knight is just a total non-entity, and Otis just drives me insane. I can't stand him. Very annoying. Uh, they lose the Undisputed Era here. It was an okay match, but too long. And, um, you know, normally the one thing Otis brings to the table is a really good hot tag. But even Otis's hot tag wasn't very good in this match. And then uh, Undisputed Era retains the title. So hopefully, for my sake, since I'm not a regular viewer of Raw, Heavy Machinery gets called up like immediately, and this is the last match that they had in the can for them in NXT, and I never have to watch Otis again unless he makes it to a pay-per-view. So uh, that was NXT this week. I thought the women's four-way was the most interesting match on the show, and I'm very interested to see the Bianca Belair-Shayna Baszler match for a variety of different reasons. And that is your Thursday TV reviews. And that is your flagship for this week. We'll be back next week, of course, is the huge, huge, huge Wrestle Kingdom preview that will consume the entirety of the show unless some massive news breaks, which every time I say that, it does. So we'll see. But uh, but that's it for us. And we will be back early in the week next week for that Wrestle Kingdom preview. Because remember, uh, the 4th of uh, January is a Friday, which for most of our listeners means like late, late, late Thursday night, early Friday morning is when Wrestle Kingdom is happening. So we're not going to do the flagship on Thursday and then release it and only have a small handful of people actually hear the preview before Wrestle Kingdom happens. So we're going to record early in the week, either on Monday the 31st or or uh, maybe Tuesday the 1st, that might even work better, Wednesday the 2nd at the latest, to give everybody time to listen to the entire Wrestle Kingdom preview before they watch the actual Wrestle Kingdom show. So uh, it's always our most listened to episode of the year. So we're excited about it. We know that uh, you guys are excited about it. And uh, I just want to say thank you to everybody for another very successful year uh, here at Voices of Wrestling, we continue to grow in just about every measurable way, whether it's our uh, podcast network or the flagship show itself. This was our, uh, our we rolled out the Patreon in December of 2017, um, sort of as a, uh, as a test that first month at the bottom end of, of that year. So we've had the uh, subscription side rolling for a full year now, and it is uh, very successful, continues to grow. So we appreciate all the support, whether you're just a listener of this show, this free show on a week-in, week-out basis, or if you're a subscriber or both, we thank you. If you listen to any of the other shows on the network, we thank you. If you're reading our content um, on, on, the, on, the, on the site proper or post on our forums, we thank you. Everything continues to grow, and, uh, and, and we're happy about that. And we've got some more stuff planned in the works for 2019 as well. So... For the captain, Rich Krejci, uh, I am Joe Lanza, and uh, Happy New Year, and we will talk to you uh, uh, after the calendar turns as we preview Wrestle Kingdom. Take care.
BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same-game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.